Hello and welcome to A World to Win. This week I talk to Ian Lavery MP, former chair of the Labour Party, and Laura Smith, former MP for Crew and Nantwich. We discuss their new project, No Holding Back, which you can find on Twitter at nback20 and online at noholdingback.org.uk. We discuss whether the Labour Party is still the party of the working classes, the likely impact of Brexit on the UK, and how the left can rebuild trust with communities across the country in the wake of the pandemic. If you want access to the full hour-long episode, along with uh, full interviews with all of our previous guests, including brilliant episodes with figures like Naomi Klein and Dr Cornell West, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. That's patreon.com slash a world to win pod. If you want to support us in a different way, please remember to rate us on iTunes to keep us up in the charts, as well as following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, all with the handle at a world to win pod. Thank you, as always, to Reverend and the Makers for letting us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And thank you to all our patrons for their support, which allows us to bring you each and every episode. Now, here's my conversation with Ian and Laura about No Holding Back. Uh, Hello to Ian Lavery and Laura Smith. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you both doing today? We're both waiting for the other one to start. (laughs) I didn't want to jump in, but Ian was being really polite. I'm absolutely fine, Grace. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And you, Ian? I'm I'm okay, I think. Um, I'm like lots of other people, uh, really, in terms of politics, still wondering where we go from here. Uh, still hoping that we can rise from the ashes and you know put up some sort of defence as a as a left, uh, particularly in Parliament, but uh, outside of Parliament as well. You know, having this pandemic and being more or less isolated. I'm the most northerly MP in England, so yeah, I'm very isolated. It gives you mm. plenty of time to think about, you know, about things and think of Zooms, by the way. Great sick of Zoom calls and you know, I got the bed, I've got this new disease, Zoomitis it's called. It's an industrial disease. <laughs> one of the um, symptoms, uh, although many people are asymptomatic, one of the main symptoms of the zoomitis is when you go to bed and you lie on your back and all you can see on the ceiling is little squares with little people uh, speaking and muting themselves and pressing buttons. <laughs> well, it's it's really good that the disease hasn't affected your sense of humour, Ian, which is clearly completely intact. <laughs> I was going to say, actually, Grace, I did that thing that everybody does these days when somebody says, oh, are you, fi- are you okay? And you're like, yeah, no, I'm fine, when really, like, everything's just falling apart around <laughs> like that stiff upper lip but the reality is my if ian's being honest my children are running riot in my house with homeschooling and trying to work but so many people are going through it at the moment so we just crack on don't we yeah and we're going to talk about you know what you guys have been doing to keep yourselves busy which has been a pretty brilliant campaign actually called no holding back which i would encourage all our listeners to go and check out you can 
find it online at noholdingback.org.uk. And yeah, we're going to be talking about um, the report that started off the whole process. We're going to be talking about what you guys are going to be campaigning on. Um, and yeah, the, the kind of the future of the socialist left in the UK, looking forward and trying to be vaguely optimistic, which I'm sure <laughs> we will will be able to do with between the three of us. Yeah. Um, so, Ian, can you start by telling me a little bit about the report that gave rise to No Holding Back? Um, what was the process for putting it together? Well, the the process of the of putting No Holding Back together like, was developed by myself and uh, John Trickett, as me, Laura and John being involved more or less from day one. And we were we were sitting in, in my office in the Commons and we were heading towards, you know, the, the, the Brexit votes. We were heading towards the party, um, moving towards a second referendum, uh, and we were discussing what sort of impact that might have on the, the the held back communities, on you know where lots of people had supported the Brexit at, at, at any cost in many ways, which isn't something which we really supported, but we supported the fact that we wanted to ensure that democracy prevailed. And that constituencies like mine, where seventy-two percent of the people have voted to leave the EU, that, that their their vote was actually listened to, and we we had agreed that at conference. We always were of the view that we would suffer in the communities if indeed the party moved too much towards or to be seen as forging the issue on Brexit, and I'm afraid that's exactly what happened. So John and I were discussing the. Southern Discomfort document, which was produced, I think it was in 1992, by Giles Radici. And the Southern Discomfort document basically said that the party needed to change its direction. It had all the northern heartlands and the labour heartlands in the bag. Why do we need to listen to them? Why do we need to give them anything? They'll vote for us anyway. There's nowhere else for them to vote. So we need to like hang on to the tails of the... Um, the other part of the electorate, potentially, you know, Labour Dems and, 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 and Tory voters, and we need to move to the working class. We need to separate from the trade unions, and uh, we, we, we need to, to realise that the only way forward was with this this move away, as if you like just bagging the votes in the Northern Hardlands, but forgetting about them. And 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 we said, well, we've got to we've got to respond to that because. We thought that we could lose up to 50 seats at a general election. This was before the 2017 uh, election. And we thought we could lose, you know, like a, a considerable, sorry, it was, it, I, it, was, it was just after the 2017 election. We thought we could lose considerable amount of seats if indeed the party moved towards a second referendum, people's vote, whatever you want to call it. So we decided to, to speak to people. We decided to put a paper together and we called it Northern Discomfort and we explained the situation in there. We made some predictions in there and sadly those predictions uh, came to fruition and you know that was that we lost 48 seats in, in leave areas and uh, we we basically said in the new holding back document that unless the party recognised the dangers we were in then we could never, ever win an election. We didn't think we would get a drubbing like we did in 2019, Chris. But, you know, it was there to be seen. I've got to say it wasn't rocket science. Uh, and there was a lot of opposition 
to what both John and I said in the Shadow Cabinet and at other meetings um, during the, the, the run-up to the 2019 election. Yeah, I um, if I can just come in there, I during this kind of period of time of the northern discomfort being created, I used to get off the train, Grace, at Westminster Tube Station, and my first call would be to go and get Ian some donuts or something from, <laughs> and then I would just go and hide out in his office and just try and you know chat it through all the situations we were in at the time and how frustrating it was and there weren't many people who who were listening and understood it and Ian Ian always did so I would uh, I would go and offload my concerns to Ian give him some donuts and I'd steal his his satsumas that his lovely wife Hillary had sent him down (laughs) (laughs) and that was really the start of it all for me um and then I got I got involved again more at the second stage. It was, I'd gone through the election defeat, I'd lost my seat and I was kind of like, like many of us, just really feeling, feeling it and wondering what direction I was going to be going in. And um, these guys, Ian and John, they asked if I would come on a call. And then we started the next stage, which was uh, the No Holding Back tour. And they asked me to get involved in that. And of course, I said, yeah, absolutely. And we toured the country and spoke to and listened to thousands and thousands of people from across the movement. And then all of the information that they were telling us about how they felt regarding what had happened in the election, but also what had been happening for a long period of time within the Labour Party and the left um, fed into the report that we did, the challenge for Labour, the no holding back report, which was out. I'm losing sense of when time was, but it was it was last, <laughs> it was last autumn that it came out. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's kind of it's gone from there. But that report belongs to all of those people who came and took the time to to talk to us and tell us how they were feeling. Yeah, and and um, the the campaign that has come out of that, no holding back, has been really exciting, and it's been really good to kind of see, you know, you guys and others who are involved in it actually kind of taking action to deal with some of those issues that became so obvious during 2019, but which you know had actually really had much deeper roots. I mean, Ian, when we went around the country during the general election, there was this palpable sense among many people that the Labour Party didn't really represent many of the communities that we were visiting. And partly that was about Brexit, but it was a much longer standing set of issues, really. These were places that had been ignored by Westminster for decades. You know, what do you think are those other issues that have created this massive distance between the Labour Party and the communities that it's supposed to represent? Well, I think one of the one of the major issues is, of course, is that the Conservatives have been in, in power for that long, 10 years of austerity, Yet a lot of the heartland areas are, um, have had Labour MPs and they basically hold the Labour MPs to account uh, for what the Tory government and the Tory government attacks on, uh, whether it be local government or you know just the local communities at large, to be honest with you. But, but to be fair, the, the, these held-back areas uh, have, have been in, in decline you know, for generations now. Uh, in the heavy industry, whether it be the coal mining industry, whether it be the mills, whether it be shipyards, uh, whether it be manufacturing, 
and that there's been that many promises given to that many people that, uh, that there'll be a new fresh dawn on the horizon and that we, we just need to accept uh, that the industries had to close or, on economic grounds. And, and then the, the grass will be greener at the other side. It never come. Um, so the, the decline in support for the party uh, in, in these, you know, from these areas, mainly where there's been big plants, uh, you know, like the manufacturing plants or collieries where there's thousands of people work rather than tens of people work. Uh, since their demise, then we've seen a demise in support for the party. It's about political education. It's about solidarity, really, because if you work in a big place, don't work at the pit. If you work at the pit, you've got people elected around you trade union officials who have got your best interests at heart industrially, but socially as well, and in the local communities. And, you know, that was torn away from a lot of these, uh, a lot of our heartland areas by the Tories. But we took the blame for lots of it as well as a party mm. because we weren't as tough uh, as what we, we, we really should have been for generations. But I think it's a, it's a thing, Grace, you know, it's an issue where people's lives basically haven't changed for the better for generations now. There's been nothing replacing these jobs where there was, you know, a decent wage, uh, health and safety, trade union recognition, where the the local community uh, was heavily involved with the industry, which was there, which stimulated the local economy. All that's gone, and people just believed, you know, they believed that the, the life shit. So why not vote? to get out of the EU. Mm. in the EU, uh, and, and then when they, they, they actually voted to leave the EU, and then they saw the Labour Party trying to fudge it at every juncture they possibly could, you know, like right away through them years, which seemed to me like decades, they just thought that the Labour Party had, had abandoned them and didn't want to listen to them and turned their back on them, betrayed them, uh, you know, a promise broken and, and voices ignored. And many of these were first-time voters. So, you know, that's what we experienced when we listened to thousands of people. Grace, this was a great exercise of listening to people in communities which we've hardly touched for quite some time, for years and years. And we had a whole variety of different individuals on, you know, myself, John, and Laura, and we were able to listen to what these people were saying. And you'd be surprised at some of the things that we learned. It wasn't just all positive stuff. Uh, in fact, there was a lot of negative stuff, but we learned so much for it, and that's why we uh, produced the the last paper, which the uh, the challenge for labour in autumn 2020. But it, this has been something that's been uh, going on for probably generations now. It's a generational thing, whereby the Labour Party used to be the default party, the voting party of the working people. It isn't uh, anymore, and we've got a challenge uh, mm. to try and reintroduce the fact that Labour are the party of the working people. Yeah. Laura, you obviously lost your seat at the last election. Um, and I remember coming up and doing a bit of campaigning with you. Yeah. How many of, of those issues do you really recognise as um, having played out in Crewe? And how did that experience at the last election, which must have been you know, really tough? I mean, it was really tough. Mm-hmm. How did that play into your involvement in in no holding back and kind of where you think the Labour Party should be heading now? Yeah, so I mean, 
kind of my whole journey into politics really grace was a, a little bit bizarre because i came at it from a very um very working class background i was an activist i kind of got in in 2017 on that really positive campaign um after having supported the change and the move that the party had made finally i felt the labor party was something that that represented me and was offering the change that was so desperately needed for communities like mine, because in places like Crewe, there is this alienation that has happened over a long period of time. And that's down to a variety of reasons. It's down to a lack of investment in education, in jobs, in, um, you know, lack of funding for our local government, all of these things that we know austerity and the Tories have, have fed But as Ian was saying, this is something that was very apparent beforehand. Places like Crewe didn't benefit as places like Liverpool and Manchester grew and and new jobs were created there. In fact, what happened was the jobs that that previously we had had, fairly good, good quality jobs with good terms and conditions, they disappeared and they were sucked away into the cities. And so towns like Crewe, post-industrial towns, built on the railway just had felt very neglected for a long time by politics and so the people feel like they can't make a difference like their voice doesn't matter and then you have something that happens like the referendum and people quite clearly said in crew and nantwich that they voted to to leave the european union that was the way that their vote went And then how they felt, sadly, and in 2017, we had it right. We could go out, we could knock, we could say that we respected the result. We were, um, I would be working at delivering a, you know, a government that would be looking at places like crew, investing so much money in it, that would be outside of the European Union, a positive vision moving forward. And then sadly, we know what happened during that period of time, the position was moving constantly. And People aren't stupid. They're not stupid. Mm. And the people of Crew were very angry. Crew and Nance, which were very angry at this. And I think by the time it came to going and knocking on doors, and I already knew uh, way before that we had a massive problem. I was one of the very few um, MPs in Parliament who was voicing my concern. Sadly, I, I, I you know, I... I resigned a position under John Trickett in the shadow cabinet um, over it because of, of I had to break the whip. I had to make a stand. I just didn't believe that we were moving in the right direction. And that was very difficult. But basically, by the time it came to door knocking, I already knew that I wasn't going to be able to get past them on the door um, over the issues with Brexit. And it wasn't the only issue, but that was the first thing and if you can't even get into a conversation about how we're going to look at raising minimum wage how we're going to be investing in um, the local community and building building wealth and looking at a new way of running the economy you can't even start having those conversations if basically the door's shut within five seconds because Mm -hmm. we didn't respect our vote and you're meddling in democracy and you've kind of meddled with this parliamentary process which has dragged this whole thing on it was it was obvious to me but never nevertheless however (laughs) however obvious it was it was absolutely totally heartbreaking 
And Mm. from a personal point of view, because I felt like there was a lot more that I could offer, but just because every, and we all felt this, Ian was saying everything we had invested in, everything that we had worked for, we'd believed in, that we knew was going to help these people just for us to be able to get that chance to go and deliver it. And instead, um, we just got more of the same and more of the same plus an 80 seat majority. I mean, my seat's not, it's not like it's a marginal anymore. It's about eight and a half thousand. So (laughs) it's, uh, it's a big task, a big, big task. I want to talk a bit more about the actual campaign itself. No holding back now. Um, Because you've got three major campaign areas and all of these are are really, really important for the Labour Party to focus on both in terms of policy and in terms of campaigning. And they're rebuilding democracy, inequality in class and the North. Can you guys talk a little bit about what you envisage as the, the big problems in each of these areas and what kind of policies and campaigns are going to need to come out of it? Ian, I'll start with you maybe thinking about the North and about that question of inequality in class. Inequality is absolutely rife. I think we've got a massive job. One of the most important things is breaking down the barriers for ordinary people that enter into Mm. politics. We've got to break down these barriers. We've got to earn the trust. And I think the trust is the most important thing because the trust between the Labour Party and communities is absolutely bust. It's gone. It's non-existent. And and rhetoric and and lovely words will will not recover the trust that we need to recover. We need to make sure that uh, people are confident in the the communities. We need to rebuild those communities. Community organising is absolutely key to that, Grace. Um, Not not just organising, not just leafleting a week before an election, a local election, or leafleting before the general election or whatever, We've got to be seen, the Labour Party's got to be seen in communities, like from the the next day from a general election till the day of the next election. If there's a dispute in the local ENA, if there's a dispute at the local factory, if there's a dispute at the local supermarket, if there's a problem with with health and social care services, the first people you're going to know is the people within the Labour Party. These people, and that's what we've got to get back to. Earning trust, being there when people need work supporting people when people need work. And I think that's the most important thing. So another issue, which I'll not hug this, but another issue, unfortunately, is the state of the local authorities and local Mm. accountability because Mm. uh, there seems to be an absolute disconnect with with councillors, with local authorities. And, I mean, I know, you know, Laura knows, John knows that the, the fact that Virtually every single local authority, uh, particularly the red local authorities, have lo- lost more than 50% of their, their income from central government. Uh, but a lot of these you know, people in the communities uh, are, are like struggling to understand that, that that's the case. And the, the, the local representatives in terms of councillors, etc., are struggling to try and articulate what they're trying to do under what circumstances. So we need... I think we need an absolute overhaul of, of local government. But I must say in saying that, lots of the councillors we've got, lots of the council leaders, etc., are doing a damn, damn, damn good job under the most difficult of circumstances. But I think it needs refreshed, restructured, and we need to earn the trust. We need to get that back. Be seen to be the default party uh, for the working people in every community, the length and the breadth of this country. 
Laura, Ian mentioned there some of these questions around democracy as well, um, and and you talked about them too. And I know this is something that you're quite passionate about this strand of of rebuilding democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to us a bit about the challenges there, and also to what extent do you think that the left needs to get its line straight on devolution? Because we've got this really centralised political system, and yet it's often been the conservatives who've been the ones taking forward a devolution agenda, and there's been some kind of reticence about it within the Labour Party. What are your views on? you know, what we need to do in terms of, you know, changing the UK's constitution to try and get around some of these questions of a lack of, of democracy and accountability? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, all of these issues are so important. And just to touch on the the issue of class, I think we, we bring it up time and time again, just the conservatives and who they represent, the establishment, um, they know their class, they stand together, they look after each other, they protect it at all costs. If only if only the working class, the working people could could find some of that to stop arguing amongst itself and to be able to rebuild. And and there's so much strength there, if only we recognised it. And of course, the um, the powers that be do everything that they can to divide, um, divide that and stop it happening. And I think Ian touched on the need for community organising. I think that is key, um, as long as it's political community organising. I think the need for political education to be happening. And I think the issue of, you know, our democracy is is very key to that, because what happened with with Brexit and that attack on people and, and how they felt that their voice was not heard, uh, we the Labour Party should have been able to predict what was going to happen. It shouldn't. And, and actually, a lot of them did know what was going to happen. They just chose to ignore it because they had mm-hmm. other agendas. Let's be completely honest. But we have to give give people our movement the tools to be able to kind of understand what's going on, understand where the power lies, understand why why certain things happen in the way that they do. And you're absolutely right with regards to devolution. And I actually think It can sound really depressing, but there's lots of very exciting things happening too. And this is a chance for us to go back and rebuild and to create something that we can sell to people, a vision, because whether it's what's going on in Scotland um, with the call for independence or it's Brexit, people want different to the status quo. That's what they're after. We have an economy that does not work for the vast majority of people. So if at a local level we can actually start using our networks, start using our power in order to start looking at building an an economic model that works for ordinary people and those communities that have been held back, then I think then we can start going to the doorstep honestly and saying, this is what we're delivering. We're not just going to wait until we get rid of the Tories because let's face it, that plan isn't going that well. But what we will do is look at different ways we can run our local economy so that it will benefit it will benefit you and you will see the you'll see the difference. And we have this happening in local in local governments. So what Labour should be doing is making sure that that is that is replicated. Because if we have things like that are happening currently in in Preston, in Trafford, in Salford, some of these examples start to happen elsewhere, then I think people will start to feel more involved in their in their democracy and their vote and feel like their voice is being heard. But 
Um, the Labour Party has to basically stop just being the party of, well, the Tories are doing this, that and whatever. And um, and instead, start, however difficult it is, start looking at how we can offer solutions to some of these problems, because that's the only way we're going to rebuild trust in communities like this one. You know, Grace, one of the, the, the massive challenges, you know, is the, the, the Labour Party and representatives of the Labour Party have got to come to terms with the fact, understand the challenges which we've got with regard to the the fact that Boris Johnson, you know, swept up 48 of the seats in the, the leave areas and stopped sneering at people, stopped telling people why they voted the wrong way, why they were wrong and why everybody else is wrong and they're wrong and we're right. We've got this challenge. Look at Trump. Good riddance to Trump. But the re- the reality is, in, in America, 70 million people voted for Trump. That man, 70 million votes. It isn't any good sneering and calling everybody, you know, like, well, calling everybody from top to bottom uh, for voting for Trump. We've got to under, try and understand how actually that happened and then develop the narrative to get these people back. And it isn't any good sneering at people who've got a different view than what you have. We've got to win people back by constructive dialogue, by good policies, policies that will change their lives. Why do the poor people continually support, vote for the rich people in this country? And I mean, back to uh, one of your your podcasts two or three weeks ago with Bastos Sankara, and he explained exactly the, the same what was happening in the Roosevelt areas or people in America supporting the Republicans. That's the same as the Tories, but we've got to have the narrative. We've got to have the messaging. We've got to be able to reach out to people without sneering down our noses and telling them how wrong they've been and saying, I told you, sir, you deserve what you get. There's a lot of people out there very, 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 very desperate, and we need, we need to be able to meet them challenges in a different way. Yeah. Laura, so we're we're obviously in you know in the middle of this massive economic crisis, and the impact on the north uh, and on the regions is potentially going to be much more severe. Already is much more severe than the impact of the pandemic in um, the wealthier parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boris Johnson has, however, managed to put together a levelling up council with thirty members, twenty two of which are based in London. Mm. How has Johnson managed to convince the rest of the UK that he is somehow going to build back better, level up, um, retain the support of of voters in the regions of this country? And do you think that that, you know, dishonesty mm-hmm. that has been, you know, very clearly outlined through both his policies, his responses to the pandemic and this, you know, the fact that he's trying to build back better with, you know, his mates in London, mm-hmm. Do you think that that's going to impact him at the next election or is the battle against Tory hegemony going to be much, much longer? So my kind of my test for this is I always try and find out from my not so political friends, which, to be honest, Mm. Grace, is is the vast majority of people who I kind of went to school with. Very, very good friends of mine who obviously have been um, incredibly supportive of, of me. But basically have chosen that, and I don't 
I don't blame them for it. They have decided life is hard enough anyway. Um, I I need to be able to to separate myself from this, and 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 that's a decision they make. Now I I've always come at it from the other side, which is politics is everything, and everything is politics. And if we're going to change yeah. the way that our lives are, you have to be involved in it. And we've got to somehow figure out, and I think this is where it's only going to come from organizing, deep-rooted community organizing, political education, to bring people into that place, into that space where they start to kind of see that. And we have seen we have seen um, this happening in various campaigns. I think the most obvious is kind of the way that people have felt rightly so around food parcels for children, the right to food, all of these things. And a lot more people are kind of getting involved. We're seeing it with the rent strikes. We're seeing it with, with other campaigns. And I think it's important that we... We need to deal with the apathy and the fact that so many people have switched off from politics because it, it isn't it doesn't feel relevant to them that it's not going to change anything. And I think Boris Johnson gets away with an awful lot on the basis that most people just have almost given up. They don't think mm. it can be different. And because the Labour Party in their head isn't necessarily offering anything different, whether we agree with that or not, it doesn't inspire them to to kind of start pushing the Labour Party forward. Um, we saw the change in 2017 because we were offering something different, very different. And it was it was easy to go and sell that. And obviously by 2019, that momentum had been lost because of um, all of the other things that were at play. So I would say Boris Johnson is a total charlatan. He represents his class. We have a broken economic model that drives inequality. Uh, It disempowers people. We're seeing throughout this pandemic the fact that um, basically it's just lining this this pandemic has lined the pockets of corporations and the super wealthy and and taken money away from uh, local local economies. And how are those places actually going to recover unless there is something drastically different offered if we don't start looking at different ways of kind of recovering the the economy and of course the Tories aren't going to be looking to deliver that because it's not in their interest they don't want the way that things uh, currently are to change because they benefit massively from it what we need to do is get people to understand that there is a different way that we need to build that support and that grassroots drive for change and we have to we have to get real that this isn't a four-year to four-year election cycle or anything like this this is you have to be in it for the long term and sometimes Mm. people say to me gosh don't you just feel like giving up and my answer is well how could I how what is the alternative here we have to deliver it. I've got a four-year-old and a, a nine-year-old. I, um, I'll i put every moment that I possibly can into making sure that this world is fairer for them and that people like Boris Johnson, et cetera, don't continue to have the kind of power that they, they do. And I believe we are at a point where capitalism and this whole system is is hanging on for dear life because it doesn't work. But if the left don't get organised and start offering an alternative, we're just prolonging this misery for a lot of people. 
Ian, I want to talk a bit about Brexit itself. Now, you've been a trade unionist for longer than I've been alive, and probably that many of the people listening to this this show would have been alive. Right. I think he was on strike when I was born. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to ask you, because, um, you know, obviously we've seen all this stuff now about the Tories basically trying to use Brexit to tear up workers' rights in the UK. Do you think this was always going to be an inevitable outcome of leaving the EU or was there a way that this could have been managed to protect workers' rights? And how do we make sure that we're actually organising to prevent the Tories from um, using this process of kind of disaster capitalist agenda to um, push through some of these really regressive reforms? Well, I think that the, the most important point is that, uh, you know, the Tories traditionally attack the trade unions the Tories despise the trade unions, whether you're in the EU, uh, whether you're not in the EU. We've had many, many fights as members of the, the EU, and that is set to continue. I was sitting on uh, the Daily Politics show with uh, Quasi Quatan at the time. He is the man, as you remember, who wrote a book basically saying that the a pamphlet together with, I think, Pretty Patel, among others, saying that the British workers are the, the, the biggest islers in, in Europe, if not the world. And we shouldn't be surprised by these, these attacks. We should be very much aware that they would be coming anyway. I don't blame, I don't suggest that this is a result of, of Brexit, but I think that they'll, they'll use it to try and undermine the, uh, the agreements we had as part of the, the EU but we've got to continue. The, the trade union movement is so important in all of this. The trade union movement, the trade unions, we've got some fantastic uh, trade union secretaries. We've got some brilliant regional organisers and fantastic members up and down the country. And I think you'll uh, you'll be aware that uh, there's been a, an uptick in membership since the pandemic for obvious reasons. Mm. We've got to get back to basics, I think, with the trade union movement. We've got to get back. To, uh, to a place where we start organising, despite, I mean, despite the uh, introduction of the legislation right away through the 80s since a minor strike, uh, through the 90s and as late as 90, and 2016 with the Trade Union Act, we've got to look at ways and means that we can overcome that legislation, start protecting the members. Again, building up confidence, because if we don't, Make no mistake about it, the Tories will rip everything to pieces that's in there. We haven't got that much left, but the Labour Party is nothing without the trade union movement. And we've got to make sure that we, that the Labour Party leadership, that the Shadow Cabinet understand and recognise that it was the trade union movement that formed the Labour Party, not the Labour Party that formed the trade union movement. And we cannot just treat the trade union movement is a drunken alternate party expecting to finance uh, at the time of election. And we've got to work, the party's got to work hand in glove with the trade unions to, to, to fend off and resist the attacks which are coming down the, the, the track at a horrendous pace. I want to ask both of you now one last question. I'd like to hear what you both think about this. I think it's been pretty obvious that, you know, as a result of the pandemic, we need a Green New Deal to create jobs, decarbonize our economy, promote income, wealth and regional inequality. That needs to include, you know, really substantively 
the Labour movement. Um, it needs to have a role for community organising and the Labour Party needs to have something to say about that. That's a lot of organising that the left has to do to achieve mm-hmm. those goals in the next few years. How do you both think we should be going forward in order to, to get those things done? I mean, if I can just touch on uh, what Ian said before with the Rolls-Royce uh, dispute that happened in Barnoldswick, one of the things that um, that collective power of being in that trade union of those people who worked so hard, one of the massive wins, which was a bonus really, was the promise to develop this program of training up engineers you know they've got the engineers but getting them skilled um developing future future engineers in that area to be able to deliver green you know create these green new jobs look at how they can take a a factory like rolls royce and at the moment so it might be if they stop building um the blades for the planes they're then building something that is going to be helping with the future of this planet but those skills are going to be based there and what the left need to be doing is making sure that we're seeing far more of that if we look at crew a town that is proud and built on the railways a town that desperately needs investment a town that is well placed to be able to um to kind of, you know, it's it's very central. We should be using places like this and the skills that are there and creating those jobs to find those people who can drive forward the change that is needed to make sure that we have a future. I mean, it was in the election, wasn't it? And both both you, Grace, and Ian and and the battle bus and me were there when we had the bumblebees yeah. doing the protest. Um, yeah. And it was, you know, they were there basically because they wanted to see climate justice, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember very clearly, Grace, you turning around and saying eloquently to them, not swearing at all, the <laughs> Labour Party, go and read what it is we're offering because this is what you're asking for and more, actually. And we just need to put the pressure on as much as possible to make sure that the party isn't moving away from this. We need to work with the trade unions to look at jobs for the future, green jobs for the future. Of course, we don't want to see any job losses, but we need to do exactly the same kind of thing as is happening in, uh, is going to be happening at Rolls-Royce in Barnoldswick, thanks to those reps and those jobs for the future. Um, and we should all be committed to that. And let's see, wouldn't it be great if if the north of England that had led in industry uh, for so long became the places that were creating these green new jobs that were the homes of these jobs and that it was that money that was created through those jobs was going into the community, developing that community and not lining the pockets of Tory donors so they can splurge it in whatever way they wish to um so as well I just wanted to say with regards to Boris Johnson and build back better I honestly I mean it's out isn't it that he has naps throughout the day like a big baby (laughs) denying it well I think he looks exactly like the type of person who probably has naps throughout the day I might be wrong but if we're going to wait for Boris Johnson to build back better and develop the north it's going to take a very long time because I hold them them and their class and the system they protect responsible for the fact that we have seen what's happened in in communities like mine. And Ian, what about you? What should our priorities be for um, for the next few years? 
I think I've said a million times, Grace, we've got to rebuild that trust. We've got to re- basically rebuild the party based on its uh, original uh, principles uh, and purposes. You know, we, we basically haven't got much of a purpose at this moment in time. We've got to understand why Johnson, why Trump get the working class votes. We've got to understand, by the way, that the struggle uh, will continue long after Mr. Lavery's gone uh, to the Vickers allotment. We've got to understand that the struggle, listen, the struggle isn't called the struggle for nothing. And it, the struggle didn't begin, Grace, from 2015 when my great comrade Jeremy Corman uh, was elected as leader of the Labour Party. It didn't begin then. We've lost. You know that we've lost many, many tens of thousands of, of, of people uh, in the name of the struggle. Look back to the Tall Puddle Martyrs, like it was eighteen thirty-four, uh, where, where we had people fighting for their rights, uh, fighting for the type of trade unionism at the time. They didn't leave the party, you know, because they didn't get their own way. They got banished to Australia. So what we've got to do, we've got to make sure that we rebuild this party based on the working class, based on working class authenticity. We've got to get more key workers in key positions, whether it be councillors, representatives, MPs. We've got to get more ethnically diverse people involved, more disabled people, more grafters, people who have actually had dirt on the hands, worked at the point or the factory floor. We've got to involve, as we've seen already, the community champs, We've got to involve the likes of the carers, the nurses, the doctors, and we've got to make sure that, you know, people who actually had to rely on the safety net of the uh, welfare state, uh, they've had to rely on benefits, they've had to rely on food banks uh, to exist with their families. We've got to get these all involved in politics. We've got to smash down the barriers, give them as much help as we can, and we must, as a party, reflect the communities we uh, so proudly represent. Get that done, build the, the foundations, and then work away from there. And you know what? That isn't anything we cannot collectively achieve. When we work together, we can do anything. We can create what we want, but we've got to do it in a united fashion. The next question, of course, is, is the party united at this moment in time? The past, Grace, we inherit. The future, we build. Thank you so much, both of you, uh, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It's been fantastic having you on the show. And remember to check out No Holding Back. I'll put the link to the website in the description. Thank you both for joining me on A World to Win. Pleasure. Thanks, Ray. Thank you very much. <laughs>